the first few chapters of Leviticus chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and we did portions of 6 and 7, has been helpful for us to read and know what every Israelite was supposed to do every time they sinned. I've had people come up to me and say, what does that look like? You know, they offered a sacrifice and they walked back home and they had a fight with their wife and then they had to wait to go to the temple again to offer another sacrifice. It was an ongoing affair, but just caused them to realize the significance of sin and how much they needed a redeemer, a savior. Every time they heard the animals being slaughtered, and even the children that grew up in that uh, time, as they heard the bleeding of ship, sheep and the slaughtering of the animals and the smell of blood and, and the smell of the burned flesh, uh, it was a reminder for them. It was etched on their minds uh, that uh, sin was gross. Sin was dishonorable to God and sin needed to be dealt with. And it was repeated every day, morning and afternoon and evening. It was, it was second nature to them. Second nature to them. All the stuff in Leviticus, for us, seems to be so far removed as we try to grapple and understand what it is all about. I remember uh, being invited to play softball with a local league I had just arrived in the United States, and softball was not second nature to me. I was introduced to these nice men and women who got together every Thursday evening. And uh, on the first night, they put me as the opening batsman. And now I knew to play cricket. And someone from the team encouraged me, said, Sam, it's as, just like playing cricket. You just hit the ball and run. I wish they told me more. Anyway, there wasn't any time for me to understand the nitty-gritty aspects of it with fear and boldness. I faced the first ball, and I hit it, and I hit it hard. I knew from instinct that uh, you should run, and in this case, uh, to the first base. And you run as fast as you could. And as I ran, I could feel the glory and the cheer from the team. I heard the voices but as I was coming close to first base, I saw some of my teammates running towards me, and they were trying to tell me something. Who cared to listen? I had to run to the first base as fast as I could. But from the corner of my eye, I heard these words, drop the bat, drop the bat, drop the bat. Why should I drop the bat? You never drop the bat in cricket. You run with it. Anyway, I realized my folly. I was running with the bat in my hands to the first base. Now, folks, I did not grow up playing baseball or softball. It's not second nature to me. I grew up playing cricket, and I understand all about cricket. But softball and baseball, I didn't get it. I don't understand what it's all about. Well, over the years, as a middle school and high school teacher, when you hang out with your students and you get into March, you hear this thing called March Madness. All of them were glued onto that. And now, I've never heard about March Madness. I know mad cow disease. What kind of disease was this? 
My students tried to educate me. Uh, they told me it was all about basketball and brackets. How do you get into these brackets? Well, there are 65, I don't know, 68 teams, and, and then they play against each other. Who determines that? Well, there's a conference, and, and then there is the Sweet 16, and the Elite 8, and, and then the Final Four, and then you have to remember all these teams. I mean, I had a hard time just remembering the 66 books of the Bible. I still don't get how you remember all these teams, but for someone who grew up in India, this definitely sounds like some kind of madness. But not for you. If you grew up in the United States, it's second nature to you. Well, you and I are on common grounds when it comes to the book of Leviticus. Because it's definitely not second nature to any of us. Uh, you're probably feeling like how I felt about softball or March Madness as you read or listen to the sermon series on Leviticus. But no problem. We'll work our way through the book of Leviticus as we wrap our arms around sacrifices and everything else that happens in the book of Leviticus. So let's today come to Leviticus chapter 5, verse 14. And we'll look at the guilt offering today. Leviticus chapter 5, verse 14. And we'll go all the way through chapter 6, verse 7. You know, beloved, as you're turning there, we're living in a day and age where sin is very rampant. Unmitigated profanity. There is no sense of shame. Uh, people are livid as you talk about sin or even as you try to expose sin. Uh, this rapid increase in the pervasiveness of sin and the openness of sin is paralleled by a decreasing sensitivity to conscience. If you know the conscience is the innate ability uh, that is given to sense what is right and what is wrong. And the conscience entreats you uh, when you do what is right and restrains you from doing what is wrong. And when you violate your conscience, it produces feelings of guilt. Guilt condemns you. Guilt triggers feelings of shame and causes anxiety, disgrace, and even fear. Guilt is a powerful warning system implanted within the, the soul to help us battle, uh, help us in our battle against sin. But today people are trained to ignore guilt, to drown their guilt, uh, to switch off feelings of guilt. Drugs, therapy, entertainment are all used to silence the, the guilty conscience, as one writer said. Our culture has declared a war on guilt. The world looks upon guilt as primitive and archaic. And if someone struggles with feelings of personal guilt, they are referred to therapists, uh, whose job is to boost one's self-image. Uh, no one is supposed to feel guilty today, according to the secular world. Guilt is not conducive to dignity and 
and self-esteem. So we have a society today uh, that is far removed from God, that encourages sin, but will not tolerate the guilt that sin produces. And the answer to deal with guilt for us is, is not to ignore it, but to admit our guilt, acknowledge our guilt, confess our guilt, confess the sins that give rise to guilt, and be cleansed of our sins, and be forgiven, thus eliminating our guilt. On the flip side, you could desensitize yourself to your sin, and as a result, minimize the feelings of guilt. The passage we're going to look at today uh, is about guilt. The word guilt or guilty appears in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 17, verse 19, chapter 6, verse 4, verse 5, and verse 7. And so this offering that you're seeing today, guilt offering, is rightly called guilt offering. Some would call it reparation offering or restitution offering or trespass offering. You see, the term guilt is used in Leviticus to refer to the condition of being guilty. When someone bore guilt because of sin, what we read here in chapter 5 is that they offered a restitution offering. God knew that his people would transgress his commands and incur guilt. And these are God's directions to his covenant people for dealing with guilt. And from the beginning, God intended that the old covenant was going to be temporary. There's going to be a new covenant that was going to come. And in the old covenant, God used to teach the world how sinful they are and how they needed to be reconciled to a holy God and how much they needed a savior. The old covenant sacrifices were instructive. As we looked at the burned offering in chapter 1, remember that it was an expiation. It satisfied. Some innocent animal died in our place, bore our sin. We looked at the sin offering in which we saw that when we sinned, we were unclean. We became unclean. God cannot dwell with an unclean people, and so we needed to be purified. And today, we are looking at the guilt offering that reminds us, it's a commercial term, when you sin, there is a debt that you bear to God over it, that you, you owe a debt to God, and the guilt offering takes care of our debt, of sin. So let's understand the guilt offering in Leviticus chapter 5 and chapter 6. Three principles, three truths that I want to show you in this passage. First, sin produces guilt. There are three different scenarios for the guilt offering in chapter 5, starting at verse 14. And you see that in verse 14 and 15. In the first scenario, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally, 
in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth to it, which is 20%, and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. So these are unintentional sins. It's a breach of faith. And it's done against the holy things of the Lord. I'm sure as Moses mentioned it, somebody in the congregation would have raised their hand up and say, wait a minute, what do you mean by the holy things of the Lord? Well, the holy things of the Lord are those things that are used in the tent of meeting. The things that were devoted to the Lord. The things that the priests would use, the pots, the pans, the forks, the basins, the, the things that the priests use for the ritual. And sinning in any of the holy things could also mean that the worshiper partook or ate some of the offerings that belonged to the priests. If you remember uh, way back in our peace offering, that when the worshiper would bring an offering into the temple, a portion of it belonged to the priests. Now, it could likely happen that as they were partaking of the meal and they were enjoying the lamb or the sheep, that they enjoyed all of it and they realized, wow, I, I forgot to give the priest a portion what belongs to the priests. And so, that was a holy thing as well. A holy thing could also mean the tithe that was supposed to be given to the temple. You know that in the Old Testament, they had to give different kinds of tithes. There was one tithe which was a 10%. It was given to the temple and was given to the priests. It was, it was for the maintenance of the priests. They gave other giving as well. In fact, their giving was more than 10%. They gave about 23%. But in this case, it could be possible that instead of calculating over their total income, they forgot about it or they did not do a good job as they were calculating a tenth of their, their income. And so they did not give to the Lord what belonged to him. And as a result, not only were they sinning against the Lord, but they were also sinning against the Levites because the ten percent actually went to the Levites and the priests suffered as a result of it. So you committed a breach of faith against the Lord. So when someone commits a sin unintentionally against the holy things of the Lord, which could be either taking some of the utensils or eating a portion of the food that belongs to the priests or neglecting to give a portion of the tithe properly, what would happen? And we read in verse 16 of chapter Five reads, he shall also make restitution. So let me go back to verse 15. If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering, and in addition, 
He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing. He shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest, and the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. So if you ate the priest's food, and you would come to the priest and say, sorry, dude, I, I consumed it. Please forgive me. The priest would say, you know what, no problem. You just give me back what belonged to me, add to it 20%, and bring an offering of a ram, and I'll offer sacrifices for you, and your guilt will be atoned for. Then we come to the second scenario. The second scenario is found in verse 17 of chapter 6. Sorry, chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord command by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity, he shall bring it to the priest, a ram without blemish, out of the flock, or its equivalent, for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. So here in the second scenario, the sin that is being discussed here had to do with breaking the commandments of the Lord. And not only did he break the commandments of the Lord, this person is clueless. He doesn't understand what has happened. He did not know it. He was not quite sure. He could not pinpoint. He could not put a finger on it. But still, he has broken the commandment of the Lord. What's the consequence for the sin? The consequence for the sin is seen in chapter 5, verse 18. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock, and the priest shall make atonement for him. In the first scenario, you had to pay back a the, the, the thing that you took, add 20% to it, and in addition to it, offer a ransom or a guilt offering. In the second scenario, the offender did not know what he has done wrong. He did not realize it. He's merely suspecting it. No one has accused him. He has a stricken conscience. His conscience is accusing him. He's feeling guilty, and he's starting to suffer for it. And so what do you do? You just come to the temple and offer the priest a ram without blemish. He doesn't know what he has done, so he cannot offer a 20% of it like he did in the first case. All that he knows is that he has a heavy conscience, a stricken conscience. And so he offers the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock. And the priest makes an atonement for him. And thus, he will be able to pacify his oversensitive, guilty conscience. You see what's so amazing here? is that God makes a provision even when someone sins and knows that it's a sin and realizes it's a sin. There's a provision there. And even when someone doesn't know that he has sinned, just a guilty conscience, there's a provision that God makes for this person. It's like this. You're not sure if you have sinned. Maybe you listen to music. Or you watched that sitcom, and your conscience triggered a guilt feeling. No one else seems to be bothered by that. But you're feeling guilty. You're feeling miserable. You have a stricken conscience. Or maybe you're thinking about the taxes that you're going to file, or maybe you've already filed the taxes. 
And you're not sure if you put all the income correctly in there. Maybe someone paid you cash for some work you did. And you're not sure if you included all of that. And now you're feeling guilty. Well, here in the Old Testament, the Lord did not want you to live with that guilt. You could come with a guilt offering and say unto the Lord, Lord, I messed up. Would you please forgive me? As a middle school, high school teacher, I would find myself using sarcasm with my middle school students. Now, occasionally, I think it's okay to make a point. But there's a fine line between what is okay and what is not okay. And I would find myself wrestling after I come home. I mean, did I say, should I have said it? Uh, did I cross the line? I'm not sure. And I have a stricken conscience. Well, you can come to the Lord with that guilty conscience and seek his forgiveness. And the Lord is gracious to forgive you and cleanse you. Yeah, I mean, we are supposed to feel convicted. And we are supposed to confess our sins. And we are forgiven for that sin. But we don't have to be weighed down by our past mistakes after we are forgiven. Yes, we are humbled by our sin and we should confess it. But we are not to be weighed down by that sin once we are forgiven. Let me give you the third scenario. So we looked at the first instance in chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. We looked at the second instance in chapter 5. Let's look at the third instance, and this is in chapter 6. The third instance of the trespass offering or the guilt offering. And it's in verses 1 through 7. And read in verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith, again, it's a breach of faith, against the Lord. Now he goes on to list a lot of things. In fact, five things that you can deceive your neighbor. If you remember chapter 5, verses 14 through 19, had to do with how you respond to the Lord. Here in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, it's how you respond to the people, how you respond to your neighbor. And what are the ways you're deceiving your neighbor? And the Bible is clear. If you're deceiving your neighbor, you're deceiving God. So let's look at the first one. And that we read in, in verse 1, uh, verse 2 of chapter 6. By deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security. Meaning someone gives you something to look after. And by your carelessness, you lose it. Or it gets damaged. Let's say your neighbor is going on a vacation, and your neighbor says, could you please take care of my dog? And so you say yes, and, and one day without your knowledge, the dog runs out of the door, it gets lost, or it gets run over. Well, or... Maybe you borrowed a set of nice kitchen knives from your neighbor and you did not return it. And eventually one day when you open up your drawer, you find those kitchen knives and then you make excuses instead of returning it. You say, well, it's been a while, I don't know, maybe they have forgotten about it. Maybe, maybe uh, it's going to be embarrassing if I take those knives back to them and say, let's just forget about it. Well, that would be 
cheating a person of his possessions, right? Maybe you are that person who took something from me, and you have not returned it to me. Well, now you need to return it to me with 20% plus. You could give me a MasterCard or Visa. I'm okay with that, either one of them. Now, before you're stricken with a guilt feeling, I mean, I'm sure you're thinking, did I take something from Pastor? Well, before you're stricken with that, no, no one's taken anything from me. I, I don't remember anyone taking anything from me without my knowledge, though. Well, that would be robbery. That's where we come into the second scenario. And the second scenario is found in verse 2. In a matter of deposit of security or through robbery. That means you are stealing something from someone. Let's go on to the third scenario. If he has oppressed his neighbor, how do you oppress someone? Well, the Bible gives you a way you can oppress someone. Would you please turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 24? Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14. And 15. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners or aliens who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord, Yahweh, and you be guilty of sin. You see, in ancient times, the laborers would stand in the town square, and people who needed to hire those people would go down to the town, the square, and then take those people and take them to their fields, and they would work on the fields, and at the end of the day, they would give them the day's wages. Now, when it comes to the end of the day, and you look at you, this guy, and you think that he's not capable of fighting you, or somehow for whatever reason, you say, you know what, I'm not happy with your job, come back tomorrow, well, the Bible says that's wrong. You've got to give him his day's wages. Now, we have that principle even in the New Testament, in the book of James. If you turn with me to the New Testament book of James, chapter 5, verse 4. James chapter 5, verse 4. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which kept back which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the lord of hosts so you see you could oppress your neighbor next let's come back to leviticus chapter 6 and let me give you the fourth scenario and we find that in verse 3 so if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, that means, let's say I lost a $100 bill and you find it and you keep it. Now, I don't have any proof. I've not written down the serial number of the note to come on and tell you, well, that belongs to me. You know it doesn't belong to you. And so what do you do? And so that's considered in this scenario here. If you, have, if you know that it belongs to someone, you've got to return it to that person. The fifth scenario, and that's we, that we find here in verse 5. 
or anything about which he has sworn falsely. That means you know something is not true, but you swear falsely in the court of law. And the Bible says if you do that, you have deceived your neighbor, and if you deceive your neighbor, you're deceiving God himself. So when you look at chapter 6, in these five scenarios, this person has sinned, he has realized his sin, he is guilty about it, he is to now restore what he took by robbery, by oppression, or the deposit that was committed to him, or the lost thing that he found, and anything about which he has sworn falsely, he got to return it, and he got to give him 20% more. And give it to the person. And not only that, in addition to that, he is supposed to bring a guilt offering, a ram without blemish. And the priest would offer sacrifice. Now, think through this. As this man would bring this ram offering for his guilt into the temple, keep in mind that they would lay their hands on the offering. And at that point of time, they're saying, you know what? This is sin I did. This is what I did. This is the wrong I did. This is whom I oppressed. This is whom I stole from. You see what's going on here? There is a public declaration as well that the priests are hearing, that others are hearing, because other people are standing there as well. And so you're making this public confession as you are bringing this trespass offering to the Lord. So sin produces guilt. And there are consequences when you sin. You see that? You've got to return 20%. There are consequences. And sin requires restitution. That's where we come to the second principle that we, looked, we are going to look at, and that is sin requires repentance. Sin requires repentance. You know, beloved, the guilt or restitution offering had to do with sins that involved taking something tangible. In the first case, if you took something that belonged to the Lord, the holy things of the Lord, in addition to returning it to the owner in full, you had to give 20%, plus a ram offering. In the second scenario, you were not sure if you had done any of the things you commanded not to do. You were unaware about it, but you still had to take a trespass offering. In the third scenario, in chapter 6, where you did acted unfaithfully against the Lord by sinning against your neighbor, you had to return what you took. You had to give 20% more. And in addition, you had to bring a trespass offering. Do you see the first step in restitution? If you look at this process, the first step in restitution is to recognize that you have sinned. You may ask, what if we are not sure that we have sinned? Well, the Word of God will convict us when we sin. How? Well, you got to read God's Word. Romans chapter 7, verse 7, you don't have to turn there. It says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Now, Paul is affirming the importance of the law. The law is good. Why? If it not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. You see, the law tells me when, me when I sin. The Word of God reminds me 
And as I read God's word, it points to sin in my life. And sometimes our brother or our sister will show us our sin, will help us see our sin. And we read that in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. And the passage says, But exhort one another while it is still day, as long as it is called today, that none of you, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, we usually take the first part of that verse, and we are excited about it because it says, exhort one another, encourage one another, one another. we put it on frames, and we stop right there. But you got to read that verse in its entire context. In the entire context, it means exhort one another, encourage one another while it's called today, so that none of you but may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That means one of you, as a believer, would come to me and say, Pastor, what you're doing is not right, and as you're encouraging me, you're showing me my sin. That's how you're encouraging me and exhorting me. So the first step in restitution, my beloved, is recognizing your sin, acknowledging that you have sinned against God and man. And not only does restitution begin by acknowledging that you have sinned, when you know you have sinned, you got to repent of your sin. What does repentance look like? Well, it may require restitution. If we have cheated someone, if we have stolen something from someone, we ought to return it back to that person. You see, to have fellowship with God... We see thieves had to give back what they had stolen, plus another fifth. Returning what was stolen demonstrated that you're truly sorrowful for sin. There's genuine repentance. There's brokenness. I'm reminded of a passage that speaks about brokenness and repentance in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. It'll be good for us to turn there to just have a quick lesson on repentance. Would you please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 11. For godly grief produces repentance that lead to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So there are two kinds of grief. There's a worldly grief and there is a godly grief. Worldly grief over sin is emotion uh, without change. You're just merely feeling sad. Maybe you got caught. Maybe you're feeling sorry about doing something. But you do not change your behavior. And that's why, you know, when I talk to people and I say, and I counsel them, and they say, I'm sorry, I ask them, what are you sorry about? And that's what I do in my, with, when I sin against my wife. I don't just say I'm sorry. I got to identify what I'm sorry about. I'm sorry about this. I was prideful. I was angry. I was obnoxious. I was, I, I was too arrogant. I was too headstrong. I wanted my way. You see what I'm doing? I'm identifying my sin. Because I got to identify my sin in order to turn from that sin. Merely saying sorry doesn't mean anything. 
And so there is that worldly grief and emotion without change. And then there is a godly grief in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. You have offended a holy God. You have hurt his people. And that results in a changed behavior. That means you're now living differently. This is what that old song we probably sang growing up. I sang that as a Sunday school kid. The place I used to go, I go there no more. The things I used to do, I do them no more. The things I used to see, I see them no more. Remember that song? The things I speak, I speak them no more. There is a repentance, there is a turning around. Genuine conversion results in repentance. There's a change of life. There is an alteration of lifestyle. This is what John the Baptist said in, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. He says, bearing fruit in keeping with your repentance. You see, repentance is turning around from one sin. And why do we repent? Because we understand the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is not a work. Repentance is the grace of God. And we read that in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Do you not know it's the grace of God that leads you to repentance? So when God saves you, meaning you turn to Christ. And when you turn to Christ, you're turning from the ways of the world. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 says. You are following the course of this world, living in its vices, enjoying its pleasures. But then when you turn to Christ, guess what happens? You're turning from the world, and you're turning to Christ. So if you've turned to Christ, you would have turned from sin. And if you haven't turned from your sin... Meaning, you haven't turned to Christ. Remember Zacchaeus? What happened when he got saved? He paid back. Not just 20%. You know, he, he paid back fourfold. He said, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. That was the evidence that Zacchaeus had found Christ. His willingness, his eagerness to engage in restitution. He was repentant. And Jesus gives us a lesson in Matthew chapter 5, 23 to 24. Remember that passage, that passage says... If you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that you have sinned against your brother, what, do you, what does Jesus say? Leave your gift at the altar. Go resolve that relationship. Go resolve that bitterness. Go resolve that issue. Because I don't care what you bring here. In other words, he's saying it'll be good for some of you that you would choose not to come to church on a Sunday, but instead go and resolve that relationship before you come to worship God. It's more important to reconcile, to offer restitution before bringing your gift to the altar. I mean, think about this. 
How can you come to God asking for forgiveness for your own sins when you haven't forgiven the sins of others? Does that make sense? How can I stand here and preach on forgiveness if I have bitterness towards another brother? Can I? Can you be seated here this morning saying, Lord, forgive me, but you have bitterness against your spouse today? Let's go to the third truth, and that is sin confessed brings forgiveness. And we read in Leviticus chapter 5, would you please turn to Leviticus chapter 5, verse 18. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. Would you also read with me Leviticus chapter 6, verse 7. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do, and thereby become guilty. You see, you, depending on the crime, you pay back what you took. Bring 20% more. And then bring your trespass offering and your guilt offering. And what does the Bible say? The priest will make atonement for you and your sins will be forgiven. There is forgiveness as a result of it. Now, how does it all apply to us today? Would you please turn with me to Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 53. Verse 10, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. We always want to know how does these sacrifice, how do these sacrifices apply to us? Here it is, my beloved. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. To crush him? Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the suffering servant. He has put him to grief. When a soul makes an offering for guilt, you see that? The guilt offering that we're talking about, that we studied today in Leviticus chapter 5 and chapter 6, the guilt offering, when a soul, that means Christ makes an offering for guilt, for your guilt, he shall see his offering, he shall prolong his days. Here we see the death of Jesus on the cross, my beloved, is your guilt offering. He is making compensation for the sins of his people. Another place I want you to take you to is, is found in 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. Would you please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. Here again, that is Christ in Christ. In Jesus, in the Messiah, God, the Father, was reconciling the world to himself, not counting 
their trespass against them. Do you see? Christ is your trespass offering. Christ dying on the cross became your trespass offering. And so whatever you owe to God for your sin, Christ becomes that guilt offering. No more blood of bulls, no more blood of goats, no lambs, no doves, but the blood of Christ shed on Calvary's cross paid your guilt. The sacrifice is already done. Christ's death on the cross was our guilt offering. You don't have to bring a lamb. You just need to come and plead the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on Calvary's cross and say, Jesus, you are my guilt offering. No matter how grievous your sins are, Beloved, there's forgiveness for your sins. All sins are forgiven. All our past sin, everything we do, everything that we've done against God's commands, everything we should have done and we did not do, every wicked thought, every careless deed, every careless word is forgiven. No matter what we have done, we will not suffer eternal death or separation from God because of what Christ has done for us. And we were just singing that song a while ago, just before the sermon. We stood under a debt we could not pay. Christ paid our debt. But you know, beloved, forgiveness does not remove the consequences of sin. Sometimes we have to go through the consequences of sin. And if you have taken something from someone, return it. If you have robbed someone, or extorted someone, or oppressed someone... Genuine conversion will, will result in paying back that person. But you know what happens is, Satan comes to you and reminds you and tells you, you know what, listen, you messed up. You messed up yesterday. You messed up three weeks ago. See how you responded to so-and-so? See what you did to so-and-so? You need to pay back to God. See how much you owe to God? And what do you tell? You say, sorry. Jesus has already taken my sin upon the cross. He has forgiven me. And you don't have to be burdened with that death anymore. Your spiritual credit cards are all paid for, my beloved. You are debt free. And this is what Jesus said. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You and I don't owe anything to God. Why? Because our death is paid in full. Isn't that what Jesus said on the cross? Tetelestai. It is finished. Paid in full. Well, you're probably listening to this and say, well, it was good for the, the people in Old Testament times. You know, it's good to bring something tangible. You know, bring a bull or a goat or a lamb. To show, you know, truly, I'm truly sorry. You know what? Do you want to bring something? Do you truly want to bring something to God? We sang that song right before the sermon as well. Would you please turn with me to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, in the book of Leviticus, the worshiper would bring a sacrifice and, and slaughter it, and the priest would take that slaughtered sacrifice, a dead sacrifice, and place it on the altar and burn it. Now, beloved, there's a new kind of sacrifice. In the new covenant, you and I offer a living sacrifice. It's not an animal. It's you and me. We are to place our lives as a living sacrifice. And this is what Paul has said. You know, Paul didn't just make this up. He took 11 chapters to explain to you this passage. He talked about the fact that we are sinners, but God is, has justified us, that he is sanctifying us, that he has adopted us. And at the end of 11 chapters, he says, based on everything that I've said so far, because you've enjoyed the grace of God, because you've understood the mercy of God, on the mercies of God, he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. You see, your obedience, your sacrifice, your offering is motivated not by nothing else, but purely because of the sheer grace of God. When we sing that song, grace, grace, marvelous grace, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt, my friend, all we can do is crawl up to the altar and say, Lord, here I am, take me. Take me as your child and allow me to live a life for your glory and for your honor. What are you holding back? Jesus said, if anyone come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. What's preventing you from taking up his cross? Let's come to Jesus and let's glorify him and worship him he is our trespass offering father thank you We've got no words father to say anything but just from the bottom of our hearts thank you lord we love you we love you with our heart soul and mind there's nothing we can do all that we need to do is come crawling to you begging for mercy. And you're a merciful God, a gracious God, always willing to forgive us, always willing to cleanse us, always willing to purify us. And you said, as far as east is from the west, so far you've removed our transgressions from us. Yes, Lord, you're a God who forgives, not just one, 70 times seven, unlimited times, Lord. And Father, as we come before your presence, we thank you for your forgiveness. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.